Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming along to this, the latest in the LSE European Institute, ACPO Worldwide Perspectives on Europe. I am Damien Chalmers, head of the uh, European Institute here at the LSE, and it's a great pleasure to welcome as our speaker, John Bruton, the former Tajik of Ireland, who will be speaking on the economic future of the European Union. Now... Traditionally, one gives a glowing introduction to the guest at this point, but these have been getting us a little bit into trouble in recent times. So if this is toned down a bit, it's nothing to do with our guest's uh, distinction. So I'll start off by turning it down a lot and uh, pointing out the common things that I and uh, John Bruton share, which is we both did law as an, as an undergraduate degree and then didn't practice it. But at that point... Our paths diverged considerably. He was one of the youngest ever MPs in Ireland at 22. And there's no one really better to talk about the future of the European Union. From the point of view of he's observed so much of its pasts and presents. And I'll divide them into four. The first is during his time as Taoiseach of Ireland between 1994 and 1997, Ireland, of course, held the presidency during that time, most notably at the famous, and I think quite stormy, European Council, where the Stability and Growth Pact was worked out at quite some length in December 1996. And uh, John was very much involved with that and the observer of that. Secondly, he was involved in the Future of Europe Convention. He was one of the parliamentarians that sat on the presidium. Thirdly, between 2004-2009, he was a EU ambassador to the US. So right at the, if you like, the pivot of uh, the EU-United States relationship. And those are the pasts I'd now bring to the present. I kind of think of anyone that can offer more wiser counsel on the trouble relations within the EU, not just that Ireland has with EMU at the moment and its relations with the euro, but more generally the problems that are facing us across the Eurozone and the European Union. I haven't mentioned two other things that don't quite fit into this episodic structure. He was Vice President of the European People's Party, and I'm delighted to say he's currently associated as a Senior Visiting Fellow at the moment with the European Institute here at LSE. He'll be speaking for about 35 minutes and then taking questions. I hope you'll warmly, uh, warmly welcome him. I'd like to start off by thanking Damien for that very uh, warm introduction. Um, I want to say how delighted I see to see so many people here, and particularly to re welcome and recognise the presence of my own relations and my wife's relations <laughs> in the audience, and indeed a cousin of mine whom I met, I think, for the first time this evening. And he, but he is my cousin, um, uh, and I'm delighted that he's here. <laughs> um, anyway, that's the relationship, as we know, between Ireland and England. Uh, we live in one another's pockets. <laughs> We're living in yours at the moment. Uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> enough of this badinage. Um, in, in this lecture, I hope uh, to deal with the process of European economic integration, with particular reference to the establishment of the euro. The views I express are my own and not representative of any body of which with which I may be associated. And I make these remarks as well as somebody who is a very strong supporter of European integration, of an ever closer union among the peoples of Europe, and of the euro. 
and anything I have to say that is critical is intended to be constructively uh, critical in that sense. I hope to show that the project of European Economic and Monetary Union has deep roots in post-war post European history. It's part of a process to build a structure of peace and stability in Europe based on the deep integration of European economies with one another. The euro has helped to keep inflation low. Inflation in Germany, for example, has been lower in the last 12 years of the euro than it was in the 12 years before Germany joined the euro. The euro has created a zone of exchange rate stability, very helpful for exporting nations like this country, like Germany and like Ireland. The usage of the euro in a large number of countries has saved travellers cost and inconvenience, including travellers from countries that are not members of the euro who can travel freely throughout Europe using the same currency without having to change every time they go from one country to another. And also it has brought seigniorage rights to the central banks of Europe, significant revenue from the use of the euro outside their own area. And it has furthermore increased the availability of credit to households and businesses, perhaps too much so in some cases, and it has facilitated trade. And it has at all times been a pragmatic project, where one learned by trial and error how best to achieve the ultimate goal. Some problems were not foreseen, others were not addressed as soon as they might have been. But European Union leaders have, sometimes late in the day, been able to find solutions, and I have no doubt they will also find solutions to the problems we face now. I'll deal with some of these problems as I go along, such as the narrow focus and ineffectiveness of the Stability and Growth Pact, the strange failure of the European Central Bank to use its very explicit Article 14 powers to rein in member state central banks in countries where credit fuel bubbles were developing. And thirdly, the failure, so far at least, to come up with a credible overall plan to recapitalise Europe's banks. But overall, the process towards economic and monetary union has brought great benefits to Europe. To understand that, one only has to contemplate what Europe would have been like uh, in the last 30 years if we'd had, as we had between the wars, a series of competitive devaluations of national currencies. If that had happened, the common market itself would probably not have survived. The goal of economic and monetary union has been part of the European agenda from the immediate post-war period, when the European Federalists met at Montreux in 1947, they spoke of the need to regulate currencies and capital movements at European level. They recognised that devaluations and protectionism in the interwar period had aggravated the Depression and contributed to the tensions that led to World War II. When the OEEC, the forerunner of the OECD, was founded in 1948 to help ensure that martial aid was used effectively, its mandate spoke of the need to avoid financial disequilibria in Europe and of studying the possibility of setting up a European customs union. Nine years later, the Treaty of Rome was agreed between six countries and established the European Common Market in 1957. It set goals of an ever closer union among the peoples of Europe, 
of strengthening the union, unity of the economies of member countries and of progressively approximating their economic policies. The goal of the Treaty of Rome was never, never a simple free trade area. It was always more than that. It was always an economic union, as one can see from the passages I've just quoted. The first serious uh, outline of a plan for a single European currency was considered at a summit of the leaders of the six common market countries in The Hague in 1969. They commissioned a study on economic and monetary union and a single European currency from a group chaired by the then Luxembourg Prime Minister Pierre Werner. Pierre Werner's report was presented in 1971 before either Britain, Ireland or Denmark had joined the common market. But both intend, all intending members, all three of us, were put on notice by this report of the direction in which the body we were proposing to join was heading. And we were free not to join if we didn't want to go in that direction. Uh, neither Britain nor Ireland chose not to join. They chose, in fact, to do so. The Werner Report envisaged proceeding towards the issuance of a European currency in three stages. The first step would involve involve free movement of capital between intending members. The second would involve a system of coordination between the central banks of the intending members. And the third stage would involve irrevocably, irrevocably fixing exchange rates and setting up and issuing a, sa a single currency for all the members. Three stages. It was quite specific on the point that being part of the Economic and Monetary Union would involve European Union involvement in domestic economic policy making. Here is an extract from the report issued in 1971. It said, to facilitate the harmonization of budget policies, searching comparisons will be made of the budgets of the member states, both from a quantitative and a qualitative point of view. From the quantitative point of view, the comparison will embrace the total of the public budgets, including local authorities and social security. That was 1971. It was thus clear that EU scrutiny would extend beyond narrow public finance to include impacts on the broader economy. It also said it will be necessary to evaluate the whole of the fiscal pressure and the weight of public expenditure in the different countries of the community and the, f the effects that public receipts and expenditure have on global internal demand and on monetary stability. It will also be necessary to devise a method of calculating, a method of calculation enabling an assessment to be made of the impulses that the whole of the public budgets have on the economy. The next big step was 19... 86, uh, the Single European Act. It sought to introduce majority voting on a range of matters so as to remove barriers to intra-EU trade in goods and services, something that was supported very strongly by the Commissioner from this country, Lord Cofield, who is probably responsible more than anyone else for the fact that we have a single market uh, in, in, in the European Union. But it also made economic and monetary union an explicit goal of the EU treaties. To help countries prepare for, ex for the extra competition they would face in a, an economic union with a single currency, um, regional funds were introduced. Both Ireland and Britain accepted these regional funds, which were being given to us as a preparation for being part 
of a single economic and monetary union. They weren't being given to us out of love. They were being given to, uh, to us in order to enable us to prepare, to be able to survive in a single economic and monetary union. In 1989, a second report was prepared on the goal of reviving the project for economic and monetary union, which had gone slightly off the rails as a result of the oil shock, or the two oil shocks of the 1970s. Uh, this time, the report was prepared by a group chaired by the Commission President, Jacques Delors, uh, on which Ireland was represented by Maurice Doyle, the late uh, chairman of the Irish Central Bank, and the United Kingdom was represented by Robin Lee Pemberton uh, of the Bank of England. The Delors report was even more specific than the Werner report was in envisaging the dangers that might flow for countries in a single currency if there were inconsistent economic policies pursued within the area. It warned, monetary union without a sufficient degree of convergence of economic policies is unlikely to be durable and could be damaging to the community. Parallel advancement in economic and monetary integration would be indispensable in order to avoid imbalances. You can judge for yourselves whether those conditions have been fulfilled. It went on indeed to predict exactly what went wrong in Ireland's case. Recalling that financial markets are very bad at predicting crises and go on lending long after they should have stopped. The Delors report said, I quote, experience suggests that market perceptions do not necessarily provide strong and compelling signals, and that access to a large capital market for some time may even facilitate the financing of economic imbalances. Market forces might either be too slow and weak or too sudden and disruptive. Hence, countries would have to accept that sharing a common market and a single currency imposed policy constraints. End of quotation. Unfortunately, the Delors report was all too prescient. Markets and their handmaidens, innocent handmaidens in the rating agencies, were initially too slow and too weak, to use President Delors' well-chosen words, in penalising the build-up of excessive borrowing and lending in parts of the Eurozone, such as Ireland and Spain, in the period from 2000 on. And then, when they did eventually recognise that there was a problem, they reacted just as Jacques Delors had predicted. Their reaction was, to use his words, sudden and disruptive. So all of these problems were foreseen. So those who profess to be surprised now about what has happened really ought not to be surprised. The next important step in the process of economic integration was the negotiation of the Maastricht Treaty in 1992, which says, set a precise timetable for the ac actual achievement of economic and monetary union. And it followed the three-stage model that I referred earlier that had been put forward in 1971 by Pierre Werner. Free capital movements, as he said, came first. In 1990, free capital movements within the European Union were ordained. And in fact, the Maastricht Treaty of 1992 uh, forbade any restriction on capital movements. 
But I'm afraid the full implications of introducing that were not foreseen at the time as they ought to have been. This free capital movement created the conditions in which banks in EU countries could borrow freely from one another. At retail level, Europe still had national banking systems supervised by national regulators, but at wholesale level, free movement of capital meant that the European Union gradually developed a single banking reality, with banks all over the EU seeking the highest returns wherever they could find them, however short-term, increasingly lending to one another, dependent on one another, and vulnerable to one another if anything went wrong. The logic of that development should have been a common European banking policy with tight supervision from the centre, especially in those parts of the Union where the common interest rate, which is it naturally flows from a single currency, was too low for local conditions. But that didn't happen. The Maastricht Treaty, however, did give the independent European Central Bank, and it made it very clearly independent so it wouldn't be under political pressure to fail to do something unpopular, it gave it a responsibility in the treaties to keep under review the monetary policies of member states, a right to deliver opinions to member state central banks, and to keep capital movements under review. Furthermore, Article 14 of the Statute of the European System of Central Banks says clearly that, and quote again, the national central banks are an integral part of the European system of central banks and shall act in accordance with the guidelines and instructions of the ECB. And instructions of the ECB. One must ask then, what use the ECB made of Article 14 when it saw the disproportionate increase in the size of the banking sector in countries like Spain and Ireland from 2000 on, and I could add a number of other countries to that list as well, including perhaps in some respects even Germany. For example, the European Commission has recently claimed that is, and I quote, repeatedly signalled downside fiscal and microeconomic risks related to the property boom in Ireland from I quote, as early as 2000. If that is so, and given that, unlike the European Commission who said this, the ECB had the power under Article 14 of its statute to issue instructions to the Irish Central Bank, one has to ask whether and how it used that power, and if not, why not? If the Central Bank of a country was allowing its central bank, its banks, its banking sector to grow to 300% of its GDP, as happened in Ireland. Surely the ECB would have seen the risk in that and used its powers under Article 14. As a member of the executive board of the ECB, Lorenzo Bini Smaggy, who may well be the next uh, president of the ECB, said himself at a conference in Paris last week, sponsored by the Bank of France, and I quote, it is no surprise that most of the countries with the largest deficits and the largest increases in debt after the crisis have been those in which the financial sector played an increasing role. No surprise, he said. 
The financial sector, however, in Ireland and Spain, from 2000 on, grew disproportionately. Given its overall responsibility for financial stability, should then the ECB have been surprised, to use Mr. Beanie Smaggy's words, by what followed? He says he's not surprised now, but was he surprised then? And if so, why? It is fair to ask if the ECB, as I say, ought not have used Article 14. From 2000 on, let's refer now to Ireland, British, German, Belgian and French banks and the banks of other EU countries lent irresponsibly to the Irish banks in the hope that they too could boom, could benefit from the then obtaining Irish construction bubble. They did so notwithstanding the fact that they had lots of information available to them about spiralling house prices in Ireland, something of which the Commission warned, as I said in 2000, the European Centre, the IMF had been warning in 2003. They had all that information and they went on lending. They were supervised not by the Irish Central Bank but by their own home central banks and the overall situation was, was, uh, was uh, supervised by the European Central Bank. And they had all had all the same information about the disproportionate size of the banking sector, the disproportionate concentration of the lending of the banking sectors in Ireland and Spain in one volatile sector, construction. They had all that information, but they made a commercial decision with a view to making a profit to go on lending just the same. Now I think you have to say that they have to take some responsibility too. Not all the responsibility can be taken by the Irish taxpayer for this situation. Yes, of course, the Irish Central Bank has to take primary responsibility. The Irish banks have to take primary responsibility. The Irish borrowers who made mistaken decisions have to take primary responsibility. But the banks who lent from abroad and from the rest of Europe into this situation have to take secondary responsibility. And the European Central Bank, with all its powers, have to take, has to take responsibility too. Irish taxpayers, in taking on in 2008 the private liabilities of the Irish banks, two other European banks, are now, by that decision, helping to stabilise the situation of European banks and the European banking system. And there is a tendency, I fear, in some quarters now to glide over that fact and to present it as a purely Irish problem and a purely Irish responsibility. While that story may be comforting to some audiences, it is not the whole story. It's just an important part of the story. Moving back to the narrative, this was a digression from the Maastricht Treaty, uh, because the Maastricht Treaty gave the European Central Bank all these powers, and I wanted to show you how the Central Bank had used, or should we say not used, the powers that they had. I now move back to the narrative. Uh, we came at the Dublin EU summit in 1996, which Professor Chalmers was kind enough to mention. <laughs> I might have preferred if he hadn't, because I was in the chair at this particular meeting. Um, however, at the Dublin EU summit in 1996, we set up the Stability and Growth Pact to give effect to Maastricht. 
But again, we made the mistake of focusing exclusively in the disciplines we were imposing on government finances and neglecting the possibility that trouble could be caused by private sector excesses. And to avoid that, and, to, and that to avoid that, we needed tougher banking system supervision at European level. As I have said, the emission subsequently facilitated pro-cyclical monetary expansion in some countries, such as Ireland and Spain, and interest rates that were suitable to Germany as it went through the difficult reunification phase were too low in the last several years for Ireland, Spain and a number of other countries. They were actually negative interest rates. And that led inevitably to a pro-cyclical bubble. In putting that right now, we shouldn't, however, overreact and go in the opposite direction. Insisting at the bottom of a market in marking all bank assets to the price they could realise if sold immediately into a market in which nobody can raise the money to buy the assets would make no sense and would destroy value. I hope European and national regulators do not compound the problem of too much post-cyclicality a few years ago in the upward direction with too much post-cyclicality in the downward direction at least as far as some countries like Ireland, Spain and others are concerned at this point. To come towards, towards, only towards, I'm not at or near my conclusion, but towards my conclusion, I now want to talk about the meeting on the 25th of March, where EU leaders will come together to agree a new treaty-based fund to help countries in difficulty to get out of difficulty. And this uh, will be underpinned by a competitiveness pact. The latest draft of this competitiveness pact has been prepared by President Van Rompuy of the European Council and President Barroso of the European Commission. It, for, it focuses on measures to be taken by member states in their own field of competence. In this respect, it's not unlike the Lisbon strategy, but has somewhat more rigorous means of enforcing it. The focus in the pact is on reducing labour costs in countries with competitiveness problems, decentralising wage bargaining, opening up the professions, a very good thing, and energy networks, a very good thing, to competition, less expensive legal systems, raising the retirement age, also I think a good thing, introducing a constitutional or other legal limit on government borrowing, and having a single consolidated base for corporation tax. On the suggestion of a common consolidated tax base, I'd have to say that studies that we've had done in our country suggest that that will actually add to the costs of compliance and will benefit big countries and disadvantage small countries, which may not be the cleverest thing when it's small countries that are in difficulty at the moment. However, uh, also the idea of a, 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 I don't think it's such a good idea to rely, as this pact does, on the heads of government policing themselves to ensure that the commitments they make under this proposed pact are delivered. While small countries may submit to peer pressure from big countries, I'm not so sure that the process will work in reverse. When bigger countries are the ones that need to be called to order, the experience of trying to apply the Stability and Growth Pact to Germany and France in 2004 is a case in point. That part of the pact certainly needs to be strengthened. The idea of using the Constitution as a debt break will bring lawyers into the centre of fiscal policy. Now, while I know we lawyers are very good people, I'm not so sure L lawyers, when they get involved in this sort of 
political judgment add much to the party. I think we should look at what happened to Graham Rudman in the United States. The debt break, the supposed debt break, could become a political football. Uh, it needs to be very carefully designed and to leave room for genuine emergencies which do arise, which even lawyers will not foresee. That said, it's absolutely right that, we've, that the focus be placed on getting government debt under control. The U.S. Congressional Budget Office predicts that on present trends, the U.S. Federal Debt Service will rise from 10% of all U.S. revenues today to 58% by 2040. Most of you in this room will still be alive then. And we're heading in exactly the same direction in most European Union countries. So it's absolutely right to get the debt down. The real problem, however, with the proposed pact is how do you enforce it? Under the present rules, this, the proposal is that we impose fines on countries that have a deficit that's too big, but we don't impose fines on countries that have a debt that's too big. But as I've said, these rules haven't worked. And I have two concerns. First, in some countries, like Ireland and Spain, government deficits weren't the primary problem. The primary problem was private sector credit. And there are no penalties at all in the pact for overexpanding private sector credit. And second, imposing fines on countries that already can't pay their way because they have too big a deficit is hard to enforce because it's like getting trying to get blood out of a stone, not a very productive activity. I believe we must design a system that will ensure that markets do their job in good time and are not allowed to be, as they have been, too slow and too weak in reacting to problems in particular countries, as the law report feared they would be. I believe the best way for this to be achieved is for the supervisory authorities, that is, the European Central Bank, the European Commission, the IMF, to rub the market's noses in the problems that they might otherwise ignore, and which they did ignore in the cases I've quoted earlier. This can be done by the summit deciding that in future, when the Commission or the ECB or both have a concern about any country's expansion of credit or trend of spending or trend of borrowing or unsustainability of their finances, that they regularly brief the rating agencies, putting the rating agencies on notice of the things that they may not particularly want to hear at that particular moment in their emotional cycle, and that they also brief the political parties in all member states in opposition, the political parties in opposition. Because if you think about it, markets operate in politics just as they operate in finance. The rating agencies are, if you like, the people who police, in a sense, the financial markets. The opposition are the people who, who police the government, the political market, so to speak. So if you want to make sure that people abide by what they should do, under the pact, the best way is to harness the strength of the markets, the political market and the financial market, in the way I suggest. Much more effective, I believe, than trying to apply peer pressure at private meetings in Brussels where nobody wants to embarrass their fellow Prime Minister, especially if he's facing an election or something like that. Finally, 
The Van Rompuy Barroso proposals do not deal with the banking crisis. They contain no proposals on that subject. They seem to assume that the problem in most of Europe, apart from a few delinquents, is solved and that a push on competitiveness is all that's needed. I disagree. The summit must tackle the problem of recapitalising Europe's banking system and show how that can be done over a reasonable time frame. Only that will create the necessary certainty that someone is in charge of the European banking situation. And unless people feel someone is in charge and that that someone has a plan, there will not be confidence restored to the European banking scene. There has... A <clears throat> I accept that no transfer union will be created within the Eurozone. The political conditions for that don't exist. But a proposal to relaunch Europe's banking system would have much more support than a transfer union. George Soros recently wrote that the EU's emergency funds should not be used to recapitalise governments, but should be used to recapitalise Europe's banks. If that is not to be done, there must be an alternative and the summit should come up with it. There has been much criticism of the stress tests that have been done on the European banks, and it should not be forgotten that Europe's banking system is three and a half times Europe's GDP, whereas the US banking system is only 80% of US GDP. Loan-to-deposit ratios are considerably higher in Europe too. Europe relies very heavily on banks because it has not developed alternative means of raising finance and the Van Rompuy Barroso proposals should address that. It is arguable, I believe, that Europe's banks are now so interdependent on one another that the problem of recapitalising banks should, as Soros suggested, be a European rather than a member state responsibility. It's also arguable that central banking policy has added to the problems. Until recently, central banks were using the Basel II guidelines, which were pro-cyclical during the boom. That also needs to be looked, looked, looked at. If Europe takes responsibility for banking, it will have to look at the size of banks, the interconnectedness of banks, the too-big-to-fail problem, and a host of other difficult questions, at least for the Eurozone. Unless we restore our banking system, however, confidence will not return, small businesses will not thrive, and the necessary credit to structural or structural problems will not be made available. For example, I'll just deal with one structural problem to conclude. Europe has only 0.6 of 1% of the world's oil reserves, and yet we use 17% of all the oil the world produces. A recent paper commissioned by the German Ministry for the Environment suggested that achieving a 30% reduction in Europe's CO2 emissions could add all half of 1% to Europe's GDP and create 600,000 jobs in renewables, smart grids, insulation, public transport, etc. Maybe that won't work, but it should not be forgotten that necessity is the mother of invention. And we face necessity as far as oil prices are concerned. Unless we reduce the amount we are consuming, our civilization will atrophy. And it should not be forgotten that necessity was the mother of invention as far as the Industrial Revolution in Britain was concerned. If labour wasn't as dear as it was in the 18th century in Britain, the Industrial Revolution would probably have taken place on the continent. But labour was cheaper on the continent than it was in Britain, so 
British entrepreneurs had the incentive to invest, and that's why the Industrial Revolution started, and this country became the leading economy of the world for almost a century. Necessity was the mother of invention. Well, Europe faces another necessity. Now, that necessity is created by the fact that we don't have any oil and we're consuming an awful lot of it. And we need to find a way of reducing our energy dependence or finding other ways of meeting our energy needs without oil, coal, or any other uh, polluting substances. So again, necessity is the mother of invention. But just as in the British Industrial Revolution, those entrepreneurs wouldn't have been able to set up those spinning wheels and all the various processes if there weren't banks in Britain to lend them money. We need to get our banking system in Europe back in full operation so that we can avail of the opportunity that necessity, as far as energy is concerned, is creating for us. Those, to conclude, I would say that the problems of the, the European Union faces today are challenging not only politically, but intellectually. They are the problems that the rest of the world would have to face sooner or later. Europeans are the world's pioneers of economic and political integration between different countries. No one else in the world has even attempted yet what we have already achieved in Europe. Those who founded the European Union had enormous intellectual self-confidence. That self-confidence must be rediscovered in this generation. There must be a coming together of minds in place of the institutional rivalry that sometimes characterises European Union politics. Lessons must be learned and problems confronted, honestly. But once that is done, we must work together to find practical and imaginative, above all, imaginative solutions. To sustain economic and monetary union in the long run, we need to create a true European demos, a European patriotism that runs alongside our several national patriotisms. That is necessary if sacrifices are to be made in the mutual interest. We have, unfortunately, and this is what probably the biggest weakness in the euro and in all of the various things I've been discussing, we haven't created that sense of common European identity that would make it normal for people to help one another out when in difficulty. That's not normal. It's something that people have to do all right, but they have to force themselves to do. It isn't instinctive. And I hope that we can, over the next 50 years, begin to build, alongside and without threat to our national patriotisms, that sort of sense of common European identity that will make these truly imaginative and far-reaching uh, successes that we've already achieved, something that will not only be durable, but that will establish a model for the rest of the world to follow. Thank you very much for that, I have to say, sweeping, and I have to say, to my mind, thought-provoking and highly persuasive talk. We have about 40 minutes for questions. Uh, if people could raise their hand, we'll take the questions in bundles of three. Uh, there should be mics, yes. Could the person at the back there, please? Um, you, you ended your um, talk by uh, saying that we needed to have um, a better feel of common European identity. Um, what, what, one of the problems that strikes me, and I 
I think this is perhaps particularly so in Britain, but I'm sure it also applies in a number of other uh, European countries, is that there is a distinct feeling amongst the, what you might call the man in the street, the electorate, that Europe is really being run on a somewhat undemocratic basis by a, a group of elite uh, civil servants and politicians without real reference or legitimacy from the electorate at large. And I think that is why there is not a feeling of a common European identity. In fact, there's a distinct opposition to it. And gentlemen up there, so my fault if people could just identify themselves as well. You sir, yes, just behind you there's a mic. Thank you. Uh, Morgan Maluli, um, Philosophy and Public Policy. Um, first of all, thanks very much for a very insightful um, lecture. Um, I'm just curious as to what you think the likelihood of success of the Fine Gael Labour Coalition's commitment to renegotiate the IMF EU bailout <laughs> is, um, especially um, bearing in mind your comments on um, Ireland's corporation tax. And the gentleman in the middle there. Just wait for the microphone to arrive. Sorry. Most interesting talk, and you've given a lot of valuable information. But the, what I take from it is that we've passwords in the treaties of the European Union uh, amount to passwords, and they, there's no sufficient backup to make them happen. And you're, you're suggesting a whole lot of very difficult suggestions going to be necessary without any reason to believe they'll be any more successful than those in the past. And one problem I don't think, which is a real problem you mentioned, is the lack of competitiveness of some countries. If they've got enormous debts and they are uncompetitive, they've got no way of digging their way out. So I really want to ask, if, we, if all these things you suggest ought to be done don't happen, what do you think will happen to the common market and the Eurozone? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think in regard to the first question, uh, I, I agree with you. I think the problem uh, is, as you describe, uh, people do feel that the European Union is um, sort of a bureaucratic elite project. Now, in substantial reality, what they feel isn't correct in the sense that the people who make decisions at the European Council of Ministers are all elected politicians from elected governments. The people who make the decisions in the European Parliament are all directly elected by the people of the various European countries. So in practice, the European Union is fairly democratic, but people don't feel that. They have no sense in their hearts or in their minds that if they vote in a particular way in a European election, it's going to change anything. Whereas in a national election here in Britain or in Ireland or in Spain or any country, if people vote in a particular way, they know that that will change the government. They don't have that sense about changing the government in Europe. And that's why, in a sense, we, we don't at European election time, and it is a very important election, we don't really have the same debate in southern Italy as we're having in Britain, as we're having in Finland, as we're having in France. We're just actually voting in different national elections, electing certain national people to go to a European job uh, from which we don't expect to hear much from them for another five years until they come around to look to be re-elected. Now, that isn't good enough. I mean, the, the, the fact that we have in practice 
quite a degree of democratic legitimacy isn't enough if people don't feel it. And my suggestion, which I made during the convention, which was an input to the treaty that was eventually passed in the Lisbon Treaty, but this wasn't included in it, was that the President of the Commission be elected by the people of Europe. Now, not with any enhancement of his powers, with exactly the same relatively modest powers that he has, but that instead of 27 heads of government coming together in a room and deciding who they're going to nominate for this job, that they would say, well, we'll let the people decide who they want to do this job, and we'll nominate them under the existing treaty in light of the people's decision. That would create a single European conversation. Um, now, there are all sorts of objections that could be made to it, language uh, and so forth would be one that many people make to that sort of idea. But tell me this, uh, is there any European, no matter what language they speak, who didn't have a view about whether they preferred President Obama or John McCain in the last American presidential election, even though most Europeans don't understand the language that either of them speak. Every European has an opinion on that. So if we had a European presidential election between a Latvian uh, on one, for one party and a Spaniard on another, we'd have an opinion about that too, even though we didn't speak either Latvian or Spanish. Um, that's, I'm sorry for such a long answer to a very good question, but second point about the Fine Gael party. Um, well, <laughs> I want to say how delighted I am that the Fine Gael party, for the first time in the history of Ireland since 1927, now are the largest party in Dáil Éireann uh, in a very decisive election. Uh, as somebody who devoted my entire life, and still do, to that party, I'm very proud of our achievement, even though it occurs in very, very difficult times for our country. Um, renegotiation is going to be an ongoing process. I don't expect uh, that there will be you know, immediate results on all of the agenda items that have been suggested by either Eamon Gilmore, uh, the soon-to-be Tanishta, or Enda Kenny, the soon-to-be Taoiseach. But I think over time you will see movement. And already, I think today, uh, the Commissioner for Economic Policy, Oli Wren, has suggested a mitigation of the terms of the Irish loan, uh, which is quite a substantial uh, move. Already, even before the new government has come into office and commenced uh, its attempt to renegotiate. But I think there is a difficulty that until European markets settle down and the European countries who are going to be lending this money know exactly how many other countries might need it. And until we have clarity about Greece, clarity about Portugal, clarity about Spain, I think it will be difficult for people to start making big reductions at this stage until there's greater clarity. But I think that um, progress will be made. Uh, as far as cor corporation profits tax is concerned uh, in Ireland, uh, we have now got a 12.5% corporation profits tax. Um, but this policy dates back to 1956, before the European Union was even uh, brought into being. It came into being the following year. In 1956, zero corporation tax was introduced for exports. That was transmuted in 1978 into a 10% tax for manufacturing internationally traded services. And in 1997, that was then transmuted into the present 12.5% rate. But that low corporation tax policy in Ireland has been the foundation stone of the Irish economic model. 
Uh, and for people to lend us money and then to suggest, well, we should remove the foundation stone upon which you would build the capacity to repay that money wouldn't make sense for the lender, let alone for the borrower. So I don't think that's going to happen. Um, the third question, pious words in the treaties, I, I, I agree, I, I, I have nothing against piety, we all need a bit of piety, we don't always live up to it, but it's better to have some piety than no piety. Um, having said that, uh, I think I have made some practical proposals to deal with it. How to get those competitiveness pact things enforced? Imposing fines if countries are already broke won't work. But shaming people through the markets and through the opposition party, shaming a government through the markets and through the opposition party, would I think probably be more effective than the threat of a polite talking to at a private meeting in Brussels or even the threat of a fine that people would know probably wouldn't be levied and if levied probably couldn't be paid. I think that the, I have made, I would argue, a practical suggestion. We'll see how far it goes, uh, but I think it's a reasonable proposal. Interesting point about competitiveness, though. Cast your mind back 10 or 15 years. Who was the sick man of Europe then? Germany. Everybody was saying Germany, after reunification, is completely uncompetitiveness, uncompetitive. The cost of reunification is smothering Germany. Their economy has gone down and they're slow and they're not moving. They recognized it. They made substantial uh, cuts in pension entitlements and wage levels. They became very competitive. And who's now the champion of competitiveness in Europe? But Germany, Ireland which uh, two years ago, before the crisis, was highly uncompetitive, had the highest labour costs in Europe, and they were rising. Unit labour costs in Ireland are now below unit labour costs in Germany and falling. Irish exports are the fastest growing exports of any country in the European Union, faster even than Germany. So. Sometimes, in fact, what you need to improve your competitiveness is a big, bad shock, whether it be the shock of reunification or the shock of a financial crisis. That's what actually enables you to assemble the political coalition to do the sort of things that you knew you should have done anyway, but you couldn't get the political support for doing them. But when there's a crisis, you do them. That's the way politics works in practice. So I think, in f I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not going to put any money on this. But I wouldn't be surprised if people will be talking in eight or ten years from now about the Greek miracle. It could happen. It could happen. They've got a terrible shock. And that shock may well lead to major changes in Greece which would enable it to become a very competitive country. Maybe I'm wrong, but I hope I'm right. More questions? Um, gentlemen, gentlemen, just there. My name is Vladimir Dubinov. I come from uh, Bulgaria. Now, I've got the following question. How do you think the present situation is going to affect those countries in Eastern Europe uh, that are already members of the Union and aspire to join the Monetary Union? And what advice would you give to their governments? 
Thank you. Um, gentleman just to the front here on the balcony. Arnold Davidson, um, you didn't mention in your speech about, of course, about the important role of the, that the European Roundtable of Industrialists played in bringing about, <coughs> they first promoted the single European market and then it's concomitant to the single European currency. And the reason I mention it is it's surprising this, um, I'm aware of it, but the point is in all the discussions I've been reading out through, throughout the years on this issue, I've, I've hardly seen any, any reference to this ex extremely important organisation. One final question down here. Um, gentleman there. Oh, you. Bahadur <laughs> LSE <laughs> 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 alumni. Um, do you think Turkey's journey on uh, full EU membership is a realistic goal or just a dream? And if so, do you believe financially or economically EU will be able to digest the Turkish burden? Thanks. Right. Um, well, I, I, I'd be careful about offering advice to Bulgaria, but I think Bulgaria should follow the course it's following of improving its public administration, improving its legal system, improving its economy, um, making major strides in reforming its pension system, which I know that it has done. Um, I, 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 I was interested also in looking at a study which was recently carried out on the common consolidated tax base which is being proposed by France and Germany and I noticed uh, that the biggest potential loser from the common consolidated tax base wouldn't be Ireland, it would be Bulgaria so I expect Bulgaria will be in the same camp as Ireland on that issue um, uh, I think you've got to look at the fact that it's um, Latvia has joined, isn't it, isn't it Latvia, has joined the, 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 uh, the euro. Uh, it's a country with a relatively low, uh, am I wrong there? Estonia. Estonia, sorry. Well, anyway, excuse me. That, uh, I hope I'm forgiven by the Estonians and the Latvians. Um, uh, Estonia has joined, but Estonia is a country with, a, with a quite a low uh, income per head, uh, and yet they have been able to put themselves in a position to join. Uh, so I have no, no reason to believe if Bulgaria does the things that it needs to do, that it too will be able to join at the appropriate time. Turkey, uh, this, the round table, I'm sorry, I didn't mention that. Um, I, own, I mean, I, I, I spent the last week preparing this lecture, but I didn't spend the last year preparing it, so I, you know, I left out a lot of things. I tried to co focus on the, uh, so to speak, the legal foundations of the process rather than the impulses that made that process come about. Um, Turkey, um, I think if Turkey persists in its wish to join the European Union, it will eventually join the European Union. It may, however, have to have a lot of patience uh, because Europeans are just getting their head around uh, the existing enlargement. They've, you know, constructing a mental map in their mind where where they begin to consider the Latvians uh, and the Bulgarians and the Romanians as us rather than them as they used to be. And that emotional process is just as important as the legal process, as I said in reference to the first question I was asked. You've got to create an emotional reality to underpin your political and legal reality. And we've got to work through time to create a sense 
among the Turks that they are European. Now, there was a survey done a few years ago which, which interested me. Um, and it asked all the countries in Europe, including Turkey, do you regard membership of the EU as a threat to your national identity? Only two countries, the majority of countries, the majority felt, the majority of countries, that it would not be a threat. That was some people in every country felt it, but the majority in virtually every country felt it wouldn't be a threat to their national identity. There were only two countries where a majority felt being in the EU was a threat to their national identity. That one country was the United Kingdom, the other was Turkey. Now, I think it is important that if the Turks want to join the Re European Union, that they really want to join it, that they really want to be part of it, and that they don't see it as a threat, because there would be no point joining a union that you felt it was a threat. Okay, I think I'd better ask the gentleman behind. Uh... Thank you very much. Uh, Jack uh, Harty. Um, given that you've said um, you've dedicated your life to Fina Gale, um, and to um, other things as well. Well, yes. Um, and, uh, given <laughs> Some of which were more fun. <laughs> and that you've made a prediction on the next president of the ECB. Would you care to give a prediction on the next president of Ireland, given that the odds on it being you are eight to one? And is that something you would put money on? <laughs> it would be a serious conflict of interest for me to enter into such a conversation. <laughs> Okay, I think we better move on to other questions. Uh, <laughs> the gentleman up there. Thank you for your talk. Gaurav Fasra from the LSE. Um, many economists have said that the CAP program um, has some negative aspects and that it deprives some of the more poorer countries outside of the um, European economic area um, for exporting their, group, their goods. I was just wondering what your opinion on that would be. Oh, sorry, the gentleman in the, in the middle there. There's a number of questions. I'll come around next time. Uh, thanks, John. Quick question. Uh, are you concerned that Ireland will ultimately become a Delaware of U.S. given the tax rates? Do you, do you actually see that after a common currency, it's important for all countries in EU to have the same tax rate if, if exports have to increase the way they have to? Okay, I think we we'll just take one more question this round. Gentleman just here. Yes, Mr. Bonfa, uh, I'm an independent consultant. May I ask you, how do you see the, let's say, 2020 strategy? How do, do you see Europe, in, let's say, from point of view of integration when still does not exist, for, as you mentioned, this concept of integration does not exist the question of a monitoring system, does not exist the decentralization, and therefore there's a lot of waste of money and effort. Thank you. Could you just, I'm not quite sure I fully follow that question. But, um, Could you? We have a, the EU 2020 strategy. Yes. As, as objective of integration, inclusion, and economic, Oh, yeah. Oh, the Lisbon strategy has failed for the same reason. Now, if there is no system that let you better understanding the EU at bottom level, this means the information from bottom, as you mentioned, 
does not lead to the strategy of Lisbon. It's just pointing and pointing and isolation and silos. You need, as you mentioned correctly, a more integrated knowledge-based strategy where you can build Europe and you're not just let's the politician lead Europe. Thank you. Okay. Um, the common agricultural policy um, is uh, absorbing a decreasing proportion of the European Union's budget. Uh, it isn't as big as many critics of the European Union say. It has also, over time, become less distortive of the market in the sense that it's supporting people living in rural areas rather than subsidising products in a way that destroys markets for other people to a lesser extent than it used to anyway. Um, however, uh, I'm not sure that it is really making the contribution it should be making. And I think with the increasing price of food, with the reduction in the amount of arable land available in the world to produce food, with the threats to water supply, and food in a sense is, is, represents a lot of water, um, that in fact you're not going to need a common agricultural policy to provide decent incomes for Europe's farmers. Uh, the market will increasingly be able to provide a decent income for Europe's farmers without uh, the intervention of, of subsidy. So um, I, I'm, I'm thinking that the, the common agricultural policy is going to loom less large in the future than it has in the past. I don't think it will disappear overnight um, because there are many you know, interests in support of it and there are many countries that benefit from it. But I think it's going to be less important and I think there are going to be other uh, demands on the available funds at European level that will have greater priority over it over time. In regard to the second question, I don't think you need to have a, the same tax rate uh, to have a common market. They haven't got the same tax rates in the United States. There's no income tax at all, no state income tax at all in Florida uh, or in New Hampshire. Uh, there are very high income taxes in, in, uh, in California. Uh, and there, nobody's suggesting that they haven't got a common market. So I don't think we need to have the same tax rates. In fact, we need to have government systems that compete with one another in Europe. <coughs> the common market should be involve competition between efficient governments with one another in providing services better in one jurisdiction than in another. So I don't think we need to impose uniform rates of tax at all. Uh, on the, the last question, I think there was a little bit in the Lisbon strategy of the European Union engaging in piety, uh, being in favour of motherhood and apple pie and calling it a strategy. Uh, the truth of the matter is that most of the things that the Lisbon strategy deals with are things that one should be doing anyway in one's own interests without ever having to go to a meeting in Brussels to sign up to doing it. Uh, and I think um, you know, the, the European Union has enough problems on its plate at the moment, to which I made reference in my speech, without you know, getting itself into involve, involved in things that are better done at a lower level uh, of government. Okay, more questions. Uh, gentleman up in the middle there.
Thanks. I was looking to ask about the euro and the possibility of states leaving the euro and the UK joining the euro. What's your opinion on that? Okay, the lady just down here. Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, I was wondering at one stage in your talk, you mentioned that your position in political politics should be aware of research and analysis made in order to control the amount of debt held by private sector. However, when both, I would say in the UK, for instance, Labour and Conservative come to depend on finance for job creation, how can it be credible for the opposition to have any say? Will it not be more of a solution to maybe focus on supply side economics and how to maybe divert the amount of resources held in the financial sector towards another one so that there's credibility in changing policies and reduce the amount of debt held by the private sector. And the gentleman just at the back. Uh, good evening, sir. Thank you for your lecture. Um, this is Akash Naidu from LSE. Um, my, uh, with all due respects to the creation of the European Union, um, uh, I would like to know whether the creation of a regional bloc such as the European Union be viewed as a positive, steps to, uh, positive step towards globalization or a protection against global competition. Thank you. Yeah. Um, at the moment, once a country joins the euro, there's no provision under the treaties for it to leave. Um, I, don't, I don't, I think at this stage it would be premature to consider making such a provision because it would immediately become a self-fulfilling prophecy and would put countries under, under immediate stress. The markets would start speculating about the possibility that this instrument was going to be used by country X or country Y. And to introduce such a thing would you know, add further to the problems we already have. At the end of the day, in practice, um, a country can leave the European Union altogether. And there is a provision in the existing treaty for that to happen, in fact, introduced by the Lisbon Treaty. Uh, and um, you know, if a country really wants to do that, it can do it. There's nothing stopping any country leaving the European Union at any time. It's an open door. Countries can leave. Um, as far as the UK joining the euro is concerned, um, I haven't really studied that properly to be able to give an answer. Obviously, Britain has been very careful from the, almost from the beginning, not quite from the very beginning, but from the beginning, in saying that it wasn't committed to joining the single currency, that it would be part of economic and monetary union in the broad sense, the first stage one and two, but not stage three. In fact, um, Mrs. Thatcher tried to stop the convening of the Maastricht uh, Intergovernmental Conference because she felt it was going to lead to a single currency. But she was overruled on that occasion. But John Major then, when it came to Maastricht, negotiated an opt-out for Britain. So Britain can stay out of the euro as long as it wishes. Um, I, I don't see any pressure on Britain to join in a hurry. Uh, I don't see any huge demand in Britain to join. Uh, but the circumstances may arise in the future where it will be in Britain's interest to join, and I have no doubt that at that stage the British people, being very pragmatic, will do just that. But I can't foresee those circumstances at this, at this stage. Uh, as to the, the question, the third, second question, um, 
I mean, there are a lot. I, my my suggestion of of brief of, of of a formal putting on notice of the opposition and of the rating agencies of the view of the supervisors in the Commission or the ECB that there's a problem in their country, uh, so as to you know make sure that they do the job in time that they uh, have di clearly didn't do in time in the lead into the current crisis, is designed as a substitute for other unrealistic proposals such as fines uh, and peer pressure. It's not perfect. But we're not in a perfect union. We're not. The European Union is not a state. It's 27 sovereign countries who have come together to work together for particular purposes. And as long as it remains that, it is always going to be a bit messy and a bit incoherent and a bit, you know, intellectually unsatisfying. You're not going to see, you know, perfection in the European Union. Uh, you're not going to see perfection this side of eternity. I think anywhere in the world. And uh, I, I think uh, we've got to live with ambiguity and imperfection. Um, I think it behoves us to put forward the best ideas we can to improve it. I don't quite follow what your alternative was. I believe in supply-side economics too, but you know, supply-side economics has its, its limitations as well. If there isn't an adequate demand in the economy, no amount of supply-side economics will solve your problem. Um, if there isn't enough supply-side efficiency, no amount of demand will solve your problem. I don't believe in any one side of that being predominant. We need an economy that works together. Um, and what was the last question? Whether the EU was was facilitating globalisation oh, or yeah. was protectionist? Oh yeah. Well, the EU, the EU is a is a bit protectionist. It's not very protectionist. It's become less protectionist over time. Tariffs are not significant, um, except for a few products. Some of them, unfortunately, products from poorer countries. Um, but I, I think the the EU is probably moving. And you might say, I would say this, wouldn't I? Uh, having been the EU's ambassador in the United States, the European Union is less protectionist than the United States at the present time. And we're moving in the right direction, albeit slowly. Uh, we could do it a kick to move a bit faster. Uh, and I, you know, I agree with the underlying tenor of the question. Okay, gentleman down here. Hi, uh, Killian Kiley, student at LSE. Um, Mr. Bruton, you spoke of certain parties in Europe bearing primary and secondary responsibility. And I was just wondering whether certain bondholders fall into either of those categories. And in particular, should the Irish government to be engaged in a process of burning the bondholders? OK, let's take one up. up. Um, yes, gentleman just there. Hi, just to follow on from the previous question, um, the, the whole, isn't the whole problem with the EU the unwillingness of politicians to allow defaults to happen, to allow capitalism to run its course? No bank has defaulted in any great nature in the EU, no country has, and actually that was one of, that's the reason why the markets lent freely and recklessly. They knew they'd get bailed out in the end. Um, strikes me that the Irish should default on the bondholders and let the Germans sort out the toxic mess that is their banking system. <coughs> Okay, the, 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 late, so the late, lady in the middle there. I wish it was that easy.
Hi. Um, you mentioned that there'd be pain and sacrifices to get the uh, European Union back on track, kind of economically. I was wondering how much of that pain would apply to countries outside of the single currency, like Britain. Okay. Well, this issue of bondholders, I, there, there are, there are, of course, uh, different categories of bondholders. There are bondholders who um, have a government guarantee, and any default on those bondholders would be a default by the government, which would have enormous consequences. And then there are bondholders who lent to banks that were blatantly banks they shouldn't have lent to, i.e. the Anglo bondholders. There are bondholders lent to banks that probably they shouldn't have lent to in the circumstances, AIB bondholders. There are bondholders who lent to banks which are not perfect but relatively solid Bank of Ireland bondholders. They're not all the same. So you can't just make a sweeping statement about this. But I think it's very important to recognise two things. Ireland is the most open economy in the world apart from Hong Kong. It's in real economy terms, apart from credit and government finance, one of the most successful economies in the world, still. It has achieved that because people trust it, the word of Irish people, whether it be in regard to cooperation tax, or in regard to the enforcement of the law in Ireland. The result is we have a big international financial services industry in Ireland, which is in Ireland precisely because people trust the administrative systems in Ireland to keep their word. And think of the word bond. Have you ever heard the expression, my word is my bond? Well, if you give your word, that is your bond. It means something. And I think certainly a country that is as dependent on people trusting us as the Irish people are should think once, twice, three, four, five, and a hundred times before they would break the word. Um, it's very hard, and it is important to recognise that these bondholders, some of them bought the bonds recklessly for greedy reasons. They're not particularly estimable people, some of them, um, or they are big banks whose executives bought these bonds because they had to keep making more <coughs> deals to get their bonus or whatever. So we're not talking about sort of, you know, something that's morally sort of up there on the level of, you know, very high level. But we are talking about realism. I think we've got to be very realistic. As a country, I know you're from the same country as I'm, I'm myself, um, you know, we've got to be We've got to recognise who we are. We depend on other people believing us. And we've got to be very, very careful that they continue to believe in us. And don't, we mustn't let them down, even if it's hard for us. That's what I'd say. Now, if, on the other hand, the European Union decides that something must be done as part of a European regeneration of the banking system and whatever, I mean, that's something else. But I don't think we should be in the forefront of it, the Irish. Um, well, does capitalism apply to banking? That's the question that I think is, I've just been asked. The second question. Clearly it doesn't, it seems. Um, it seems that banks are too big to fail. Uh, now, 
there was a, a Secretary of the Treasury who for about a week uh, believed that banks should be allowed to fail. We had an experiment, a real live experiment in allowing banks to fail in 2008. Lehman Brothers, which wasn't really a bank, but it was a sort of a bank. It had become quasi-bank. It was allowed to fail, and it was a raving disaster for the United States government and for the advocates of you know, that. The only solution I've, I see, frankly, is to make banks small enough that they can be allowed to fail. That's going to take years. It's going to take years if we go that direction. And then there should be other banks which will not be allowed to fail, which should be in a different category, which should probably be treated like public utilities, like the, you know, the roads or the, air, air, the, you know, the air, uh, airports and things like that that can't be allowed to close. Um, I think bank, big banks are public utilities and they need a different regime. They can't be treated in a normal capitalist way. Small banks can, and you know we may, t may need to move to different rules. Now, I haven't thought this out. I don't know. I don't think anybody... The problem is I don't think anyone else has thought it out very much either, and I don't see any proposals emanating in the Van Rompuy-Barroso um, pact either for you know, dealing with the sort of dilemmas of what banks should be allowed to fail when and so forth. <coughs> the last question was... was, was it? Um, Sorry, no. Payments, the Euros, non-Euro countries and payments. Well, the, the countries that are not in the, um, in the Euro but are in the European Union uh, countries are part of economic and monetary union. They're just not in the single currency. Uh, and they do have responsibility under the treaties as part of the economic and monetary union. And indeed, the second biggest lender in Europe to the Irish banks, or British banks, after the Germans. And if the Irish banks had been allowed to fail in 2008, there would have been devastation here. Banks would have failed here too. So I think it's, you know, was in the interest of Britain to help the Irish government in uh, saving British banks. Uh, things are that interdependent because there are free capital movements within the, Euro within the EMU, not just within the Euro. So there are free capital movements from which Britain benefits enormously as part of economic and monetary union. So there is a responsibility to preserve that market in all those for on the shoulders of all those who participate in it, I think. Not just the Euro members. I've got time for about two more questions. Gentleman there, you've been waiting for a while. Thank you. Um, I just wonder if you give us your take on uh, EU-US relations. What are the main pressure points, and how do you uh, envisage dealing with them? Thank you. That's a small question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the, one, the one at the top. Hi, good evening. Thank you. Uh, I was just wondering, during your speech, you talked about recapitalization of the European banks. Like, I mean, they already got, like, hundreds of billions of euros and pounds and like how much do they need more uh, money and where should that money come from and if the money is available like do you believe in the effectiveness of the banks lending this money to the right place thank you 
take the last question first. I mean, our, our banks in your we our banks are probably too big. We have probably too many too 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 big a banking system in Europe. And I think part of the solution uh, has to be not just recapitalizing those banks that we wish to continue, but developing other ways for companies can raise funds. We don't have a big bond market for companies in Europe like they have in the United States. And that means that our European companies rely to an unhealthy degree on, on banks for their finance when could, they could raise it in other ways. We haven't developed adequately a financial market in Europe for other forms of, of making funds available to, to take some of the stress and the pressure and the criticality of our banking system. Uh, I didn't go into that, but that would be part of what I would be having in mind when I talk about recapitalizing the banks. Some of the money may have to come from government on the basis of an investment, uh, which would be, in most cases, repaid with interest. And, uh, some of it may have to come from outside Europe. There are many outside Europe who have uh, funds to spare, as we know. Indeed, there are global imbalances in the form of some countries having too much money. In a proper way, they should be brought in to help in the recapitalization of the European banking system. I think there are many ways available to us to, to deal with this problem, but I, I think it needs to be dealt with on a European basis. The idea that each one of the 27 countries, or each of the countries that needs to recapitalize its banks should do it on its own, I think isn't realistic, given that we've had free capital movements since 1990. Um, on EU-US relations, um, I, 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 I don't really want to go too much into that. I, I was in, I'm a bit out of date with the latest in EU-US arguments. Uh, I'll just make a few observations generally. Um, I, I found that when the Americans, as, as you know, I spent five years there, when the Americans thought of Europe, they thought about security. What contribution was Europe going to make to global security? When the Europeans thought of America, they thought about money and the economy and how was the US going to contribute to um, e e economic growth in the world. The Americans see us Europeans as not contributing adequately to our own defence. The Europeans say, hang on, the sort of defence that you have in mind is to some extent designed to fight a war that might have taken place sometime between 1945 and 1990, but didn't and isn't now going to take place because that's not the threat we face anymore. So asking us to spend more on that sort of defence, conventional defence to defend the full gap or whatever it is, that's irrelevant. We have... The, Part of the war, most a good part of the Warsaw Pact is now in the European Union and in NATO. So that sort of um, defence thinking is out of date. So there, there is a terrific sense, I think, of Europeans and Americans talking past one another. Um, the Americans get very impatient that Europe can't make up its mind um, on some issues. And then they get very annoyed when the Europeans do make up their mind on other issues. Um, and they sort of, they oscillate between whether they want more Europe or less Europe. We Europeans 
are, however, a bit more modest in what we're doing. But also, I think the same applies in reverse. Uh, Europeans expect when an American president is elected on certain policy proposals that he can just do things. Well, as we know, it's very difficult, even when a president controls his, party, his own party controls in Congress, to get things through in Congress. So in a sense, we're actually quite alike one another. In a different way, we can make all sorts of pious commitments in the European Union, but we have a hard job delivering them, and a lot of the time we don't, because we're 27 different countries. The United States can make all sorts of commitments, but it too has a hard job delivering it, because it has a divided government, where it is designed, the US Constitution is designed not to do things. It was designed not to work, because the founders believed that government essentially was you know, an intrusion, and the intrusion should be kept to the minimum. And they set up a system that wouldn't work in order to keep government at a low level. And just as you know, the colonists in Boston distrusted the government here in London, it is still the case that the Tea Party movement uh, distrusts government in the United States. Um, so we're in fact neither of us, we're both you know, find one another quite frustrating at times and yet we're the best friends in the world. We depend enormously on one another, we invest hugely, we Europeans invest hugely in America, Americans invest hugely here far more than either of us invest anywhere else, we're sort of part of one civilization. Uh, but just as you know, sometimes the British find the French annoying and the French find the British annoying, Europeans find Americans annoying, and Americans find, um, find Europeans annoying, but we get on. <laughs> okay, on that note, um, I think first as a courtesy, could I just ask, uh, before you leave your seats, to let the, uh, the speaker leave the podium. Secondly, just to show how, how wrong us academics can get, I, I quoted the Dublin summit because I thought it was a huge negotiating triumph. Uh, but um, <laughs> it the, the deal, well, the, the European Council, the challenges faced by the European Council uh, this month, I think, are far greater than those that were faced in 1996. And one of, I think, one of the, the failures of 1996 was there was a lack of debate about what to do then. There wasn't much debate helping policymakers. And to that extent, the fact that we have these sort of debates today and such thought provoking ideas with such sweep is fantastic. Thank you very much for, I thought, a really wonderful talk and really excellent answers to a very wide range of questions. Thanks very much.